grab your Bibles. We're in Romans, Romans 9 today. We made it out of chapter 8, if you can believe that. And if you need a Bible, there's some in the back. Go ahead and just go grab one. Well, many people will oftentimes come to me and say, well, where do I start reading the Bible at? What, what, you know, if I really want to know what Jesus is about, where do I go? What, you know, throughout youth ministries and college ministry over the year, uh, a lot of questions along those lines. And if you really want to understand the New Testament, there's, there's three books that you would read. And I'm not just talking about the gospel. If you want to, I mean, uh, one of the gospels is, is John, and that is a great book to go through if you really want to understand Jesus. But the second one would be the book we're going through, Romans. And the third one would be the book of Hebrews. Uh, to, to be able to understand those three books is a huge undertaking, which is a great one because you figure out who Jesus is, why he came, what are you supposed to do about it, how are we supposed to live because he came and because we've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and what are we supposed to do about it. And uh, this is really what I call where the rubber hits the road. Um, I'm amazed at, uh, and of course, none of you would be other Christians, okay, because uh, we're all really great Christians, um, and we never do anything wrong, right? Um, but I'm amazed as I look at different friends on Facebook, some of the stuff that they post, and I'm thinking, you're supposed to represent. W- what are you posting that for? And what do I mean by that? Well, they call themselves a Christian. They're out there saying, yes, I'm a Christian. They, they go to church, and yet they post that. And I'm sitting there, I, it, it makes me shake my head. And I'm not just talking about somebody who, you know, once in a while will post something. I'm talking about, like, consistent stuff. And it, it just makes me go, come on, we're supposed to represent. We represent the Savior. We represent the Creator of this world. How are we supposed to act? Because I guarantee you, we're going to hit hard times. We're going to hit difficult times in our life. We're going to have great celebrations like weddings and, and birthdays and, and family gatherings and those high mountaintop type experiences. But there's going to be times where we're going to hit that low. And we have to decide, do I represent or not? Do I believe and do I act upon what I believe right here and now? That's what we have to decide. And I'm not trying to beat you over the head um, because, you know, there's grace and there's forgiveness and, and there's mercy and there's all those wonderful things. But we have to do our part. That's God's part. And He does His part. We have to do our part and decide, who do I live for? Who do I represent? Well, today we're going to enter into a new section of Romans because uh, Paul has been, you know, uh, you know, like chapter 1 through 8. It's a whole teaching by Paul, a whole section of teaching. And he kind of goes in a different direction in the next three uh, chapters, 9, 10, 11. Uh, he's, he, you know, he starts talking to, uh, well, about uh, his family, his extended family, the Jews. So let's go jump into it. Uh, Romans 9, 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. Have great sorrow, un, uh, unceasing and an unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, and the receiving of the law. 
the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is, <coughs> who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Wow. Paul is clearly shifting gears here. Because, I mean, remember at the end of chapter 8, we're kind of, we're kind of in the, uh, uh, the end of chapter 8, we're kind of in the mountaintop kind of experience here for, you know, where he goes, for I'm convinced that neither life nor death nor angels or, or demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And we, we grab onto that and we just say, wow, I need that. There are times in my life when I need to be reminded nothing will separate me from the love that God has for me, that Jesus Christ has for me. And then he turns around and says, but my people, come on. What are you doing? I mean, that's how Romans 8 ends with him being on the mountaintop. In, in Romans 9, he, he kind of goes into this valley of despair, this, this frustration that he stays in for a couple of chapters. And he's talking about the Jews' relationship to Yahweh, the, the Creator, to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the rejection of that Messiah. Paul has to say, I am telling you the truth. I am not lying here. The reason he says this is because we are not going to believe how much he loves the Jews here. Especially based on how they're treating him. I mean, this is not a group that's loving toward Paul at all. Paul says, if I could be cursed so that they could be saved. That's a huge statement. What is he saying there? Yeah, he's saying the big H word, right? H-E double hockey stick. I would go to hell, he says, if my people would come to the Messiah. Wow. Paul was frustrated that his people had rejected Messiah. They harassed Jesus as he taught the word, as he taught in the temples. And we're not talking about the normal people. We're talking about the religious people, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the big C's, all the big, you know, all the ones that were in the upper echelon, all the leadership just constantly on him. Anytime they ask him a question, they try to trap him in that question. Nicodemus, one of the leaders, had to come to him in the middle of the night just to ask him a question and to see him because he wanted to have an honest conversation and he couldn't do that in front of the microphones, so to speak. You know what I'm saying? They tried to pin him down in gotcha moments, much like our politics today. I mean, you know, who cares what the person really meant to say? Let's, look at, let's nitpick on this little section of what they did say because I'm going to take it completely out of context and just rant and rail on it. No matter what side, Democrat, Republican you're on, that's what happens, okay? Who cares what they really meant? And that's what they did to Jesus. Times have really changed, haven't they? Man, Jesus handled this by putting it back on them. He asked the questions. He asked them questions the whole time. They never stopped. Even at his arrest, the Jews had these great laws to protect the innocent, and they ignored those laws when it came to Jesus. 25 years after the crucifixion, Paul writes that his people, the Jews, are still rejecting the Messiah. You would understand them uh, questioning uh, you know, you would understand them questioning that. I mean, 
they didn't really realize that Jesus was going to be a suffering servant. The suffering servant that, that, that Jeremiah talked about and the conquering king of the Psalms and that David talked about to the Jew were, were two different people. They weren't the same. Yet Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You missed them because you weren't looking for the suffering servant. Even after Peter preached at Pentecost, by the anointing of the Holy Spirit, even after Stephen stands before them while they're stoning him, and he says, Father, forgive them, just like Jesus did on the cross. Even after Paul travels the world teaching in the synagogues, they still do not understand. So Paul says, man, I'm in great agony over this. Paul relates to any one of us who has a loved one who has rejected God. And we go, man, I would just do anything for them to come to the Lord. Or maybe it's a close friend who refuses to see Christ. People who think that, uh, you know, you go, man, they would just make great, wonderful Christians if they would just come to the Lord. But we hold on to this hope. But the hope seems to keep, keep getting dashed. That's what Paul's going through. You know, people say to Christians, I'm glad that you can believe that. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you found something that you can believe in. Or, or maybe it's the opposite. Don't shove, no, don't, don't even mention, don't shove that down my throat. No, 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 no. Separation, church, and state. Don't even say Jesus. You know. Wow. The Apostle Paul would be excited if even one of these guys would come to understand the Messiah and what it means to them. Hey, Paul, we're, we're sorry for, for, for following you around all this time and harassing you. Hey, Paul, we're, we're sorry we took a vow to kill you. Hey, sorry we opposed you. You were right, and we were wrong. Now, we always love it when somebody tells us we're right, right? Follow me here, Right? Good. You are awake. I, I'm glad. You know, my wife, I promised her I wouldn't put this on Facebook, but I did not promise I would not say it in the sermon, okay? She wrote me a text this last week um, that said, because I told her, she was getting ready for Grayson's birthday party and stuff, and she's like doing all this different food. And I go, and, and we're doing the cars theme, you know, because you got to have a theme for a kid's birthday party, apparently. And um, so she's trying to think of all these, you know, maters, taters, you know, all these different things for cars, if you know what I'm talking about. So, um, so I said, Lisa, I said, you should have just ordered pizza and just called on Luigi's tires and been done with it, you know? And, and she's like, you know, I should listen to you sometimes. You're right a lot. <laughs> or something like that in text. I'm like, I'm going to tell everybody you said that. She's like, no, 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 don't. Don't put it on Facebook. It's even better the way she wrote it. I should pull it out, but I don't want to take the time. But, you know, we, we love it when we're told we're right. And Paul was sitting there going, I wish my people would just tell me, yes, you're right. The interesting thing is Paul, you know, had experienced great success with the Gentiles. Anybody who's not a Jew is considered a Gentile. Non-Jews. Coined by the Jews to mean there's us, and then there's all these other people out there. Okay? And that's how it came to be. Okay? But Paul had experienced great results with the Gentiles. Some would say this was because he was a Gentile. You know, the name Paul, it's a Roman name. He's a Gentile. No, Paul's a Jew. His, his name was Saul. He changed it when, when he met Jesus. He was not only a Jew, he was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was in the upper echelon of, of the Jewish community. 
Paul's conversion was actually a very difficult one. Jesus knocked him down to the ground, blinded him on his way to Damascus. He volunteered to go there to break up a group of Christians, to go there and kill Christians, beat some of them up, disperse them, and arrest some of them. A typical weekend for, for Saul the Jew. In the middle of this traveling, the Lord knocked him down to the ground and says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's like, who are you? He goes, I'm Jesus. And he's like, uh, oops, sorry. And then he was blinded at this point. And one of the Christians that Paul was actually going to persecute actually came and helped him out. This is just an amazing thing that happened. He told him, Saul, God has told me to tell you, you will speak to king of kings. You will speak to people in authority about Jesus. You will suffer for the gospel, and you are going to reach out to the Gentiles. And Paul's like, uh, that doesn't fit into my five-year plan. I mean, Paul had it all changed. I mean, it changed everything for him. Some of us could even say, wow, that's kind of what happened to me. I mean, I met Jesus, and my life completely changed. The direction I was going completely changed when I met Jesus because I met him in an older age. Or some of us may say, um, you know, I met Jesus when I was a, a young one, and through my life I had to make, you know, different decisions and, and, you know, keep going back to the path of God. But I've been with Jesus all the way along. And others are sitting there going, that's not my story. My story is Jesus had to knock me down. Man, he had, to, he had to go after me to get me to come to him. And Jesus deals with both. So when you pray to God to, to, save, uh, you know, to, to save someone, you're saying, God, I don't care. I don't care what you do to save them. Save them. If you've got to knock them down, do it. Much better to be knocked down now than to go to H-E double hockey sticks. You know what I'm saying? And I know I keep joking around about that and stuff, but it's a real place that we don't want to be in. Now, some of us relate to, to Paul in Romans 9 where he says, you know, my people, oh, how I wish they would get to know God. The Jews do not love Paul at this point. Paul was a, was a traitor to them. He was the enemy to them. He wasn't an enemy to, you know, Judaism, um, uh, uh, but, I mean, that's our roots, our scripture, our basis for everything is Judaism, you know. But to the people, to the Jews themselves, he was a traitor. We understand Judaism in a different light. We understand the Old Testament in a different light. We read it differently than a Jew reads it. Now, act, acting this way toward his, his enemies, Paul identifies and imitates the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to his own, and, as John says, and his own did not receive him. Just as Jesus came to his own people, and they rejected him. Paul's sitting there going, I've come to my own people time after time, and they've rejected me. Jesus willingly sacrificed himself for those who wanted him dead so that people could be saved. Jesus didn't die for just cooperative people. Jesus died for people who were spitting in his face, ripping out his hair. Jesus died for, for people who were shoving the crown of thorns on his head, nailing him to the cross. Even the thieves on the cross, they're all dying up there, and one thief is making fun of them, and another one says, forgive me. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. 
He even says, Father, forgive them, for they do do not know what they're doing. See, the Apostle Paul and Jesus are our role models, especially for those who try to persecute us for what we believe, for the salvation that that we hold on to. Christ says, I was cursed for that salvation. It's not a very, very, I mean, it's not a light thing. It's a heavy thing. Paul says, I wish I could be cursed so my people would come to salvation. In Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is anyone who is hung on a pole. So Christ became cursed for us. He willingly and purposely took our curse upon him. Now some people would say, what curse? Paul taught us in Romans 1 through 8 that it's the curse of Adam, the curse of sin. And Christ on the cross becomes what we call the second Adam, and he redoes what Adam did wrong. He reverses that process. He takes the curse of the garden upon himself so that we don't have to be cursed. Now, before we move on, I think it's important. Let's not let this thought kind of escape us today. Let's not just go, oh, okay, and, and move on. Let's, you know, let's, um, let's know it beyond our minds in a sense. Let's know it before, you know, beyond our, our hearts or, or with our hearts or within our being today that we are no longer cursed. You're no longer cursed. That's a great thing. Can I get an amen or something? Yeah, I mean, we're no longer cursed. Yes, we all have sin. Yes, we all do things that are wrong. We will sin. But we can ask for forgiveness. And we deal with the consequences of sin. And then we move on. We don't get stuck right there in the curse. See, so many of us stay right there in the guilt. So many of us stay right there in the, you know, where we're acting like we're just cursed because of the decisions we made. Yes, we have to deal with consequences. Sin has consequences. My son does something wrong. He gets in trouble. Do I forgive him? Absolutely. He's my son. I love him. But he still has the consequence to deal with. You know, I mean, I, I say this over and over. It goes off, you know, it goes back to the old adage. You drop off, you know, you jump off a building. Will God forgive you on the way down? absolutely. Are you going to go splat? Absolutely. You see what I'm saying? We have to deal with the consequences, but yes, we still get forgiveness. Too often we're like, I'm cursed. I did this thing wrong and I'm cursed. And we live right there. Instead, our attitude is to say, I am not cursed. I was, but now I'm not. I am saved. It wasn't easy to save me. Some people can say, man, it was not easy to save me, you know? And some people would say, man, I'm, I'm still not easy to love. I mean, think about this. On a scale of one to, uh, one to ten, how easy is it for you to be loved? Be honest. Don't say five, okay? Pick one or the other. Are you easy to love or not? Some of us would say, yeah, I'm easy, you know, I'm easy to love. And some of us go, man, you know, so I, I could be really difficult to love. That's okay. I think that both God's grace and God's mercy covers us. And through that grace and mercy, even we can love those that are difficult to love. Especially when you're in the body of Christ. And we need to remember that. 
Too often, we're like, I'm not going to sit over there next to that person. I don't like them. Now, we got a smaller congregation. We're not necessarily like that. I, I, I do see Bob sitting over here and, and, you know, Deanna sitting over there. You know, I'm joking. Um, I'm just saying that, you know, too often we're just like, that, that, that person over there irritates me. And what you're saying is my brother in Christ, my sister in Christ, they irritate me and I don't want to be around them. Whoa, wait a second. Is that how we should be acting? No. The grace and mercy gives us the attitude to be able to love those that are around us. And we should do that more often. I think both Christ's example and Paul's example here where he says, I'm willing to be cursed so that they can be saved. I think that's an example for us to, you know, ask ourselves, how much sacrifice have I given so that someone else could be saved? Wow, that's a big question. We worry a lot, but when's the last time you fasted and prayed for someone that needed to be, you know, that, 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 that needed Christ to intervene in their life? When's the last time you fasted and prayed for your husband or fasted and prayed for your wife or your family member or a friend or, or you know, a cousin or, or whoever, a coworker? When's the last time you went to the Lord and said, Lord, they really need you in, your, in their life and I'm willing to, to, to sacrifice here a little bit? And fast and pray. When's the last time you got serious about it? You know, the Apostle Paul would love to say, man, all these years in ministry, I have really led a bunch of my people, in other words, the Jews, to the Lord. But instead, every time he's turned around, what has he started? Another Gentile church. And how exciting that is because we, you know, unless you're a Jew, any Jewish blood here today? Okay. So then you ought to be thankful for Paul. Every time you turn around, he started another Gentile church. And you're the result of that. Churches all over the world, because of Paul and Peter and the other guys who came to Christ at that time, went out there and started Gentile churches. And yet his own family members rejected him. So we have to ask ourselves, if Paul agonized over the Jews, who do I agonize over? If Paul and Jesus interceded for the enemies, what enemies do I have? Or the enemies of America do we have that we should be praying for? When's the last time that you prayed for a terrorist? Oh, yeah, that'll get you, huh? I mean, we see it all over the news. I mean, there's, I mean, it's even slowly kind of creeping over even in America. They, they had a guy that, that stabbed an officer at one of the airports, uh, you know, uh, in the Midwest, screaming to Allah Akbar. When's the last time that we prayed for a terrorist instead of going, oh, man, I hope this stuff doesn't reach America? Well, guess what, folks? It's going to. Why? Because the enemy of God is seeing America wake up a little bit. And the enemy's going to do anything to go after us. Lord, save them. Lord, help me to love them. Help the gospel to get to them. They need it really bad, don't they? Just as much as your neighbor down the street does. We need to be praying for this world. Paul in verse 3, Romans 9, says, For I could wish that myself, that I myself were cursed 
and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those on, of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Paul gives us a list here. Seven things, advantages afforded to the Jews. The first one is the adoption to sonship. And this is a great thing. You know, I, I relate to this one. You know, he made Israel his chosen people. Paul would be the first one to say that the Jews weren't chosen because they were great people. Or there were people that were easy to get along with. Or, or, you know, we really looked out for others, didn't we? Paul would not say that. Paul would not say that, man, the Jews were chosen because they were so in tune with God. No, Paul would say we were chosen because we were the opposite that becomes the trophy in God's trophy case. Where God can say, man, look at, look at, uh, where we can say, look at God's grace, look at God's mercy, look at how God treated the Jews after what they did and how they rejected him. And look at God's covenant and how he was always there for them. That's how God is with us. The whole world should look at Israel and say, wow, look at what the Lord can do with a little country that completely turned itself over to God. Israel is an example of how patient God is. Not how wonderful the Jewish people are. And uh, I have an affinity for the Jewish people. I love the Jewish people, but, but they, you know, wow, they have not gone after God. They have not sought God. Some of you might say, wow, Alan, that, that's kind of a microaggression, you know. And, and No, no, no. This is Paul talking here. Paul is saying he is a Jew. Paul's a Jew, and he's saying these things. Secondly, they were given the divine glory of God. What is Paul saying here? I think he's talking about how many times the Jews, Israel, got to witness God's glory. They got to witness God's glory way more than any other nation. Just read the books of, book of Exodus alone. You will see a, you know, a group of people that got to see amazing things, glorious things. Hebrew slaves in Egypt, and, and the Pharaoh is saying that he is God, and Moses is going, no. And Pharaoh's going, I'm your master. And then Moses shows up, and he says, the God of Hebrews says, let my people go. Hello, he says, I am their God. The other God is weak. Moses responds, no, 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 no. You're just a pawn in the big game here. The outcome has already been determined, so you need to let us go. Pharaoh says no, and that starts the progression of, of the, the, the ten different plagues. And Pharaoh hardening his own heart, and God saying, okay, you want to harden your heart, I'm going I'm to quicken the process here. And Pharaoh put them all of Egypt through this struggle. And finally, after the ten plagues, Israel leaves in the middle of the night. They get to the Red Sea. Pharaoh changes his mind. And what does God do? He parts the water. He puts the cloud between the people and the army and allows... How much time did it take before the riverbed dried that they could cross? I don't know. Did God instantly dry it? Or did it take, you know, a few hours before they could get their stuff across? I don't know. I think it took a while. 
And you know the rest of the story. They got across. And then they encountered them, uh, you know, the Amalekites. These are the, the hell's angels of the desert. They were all, you know, Los Angeles uh, or um, Oakland Raider fans or Las Vegas Raider fans. I don't know what, you know, whatever the Raiders are. Oh, where, where did I go on this? Okay. But I mean, 400 years of, of being slaves, they didn't have weapons training. All they knew how to do was basically make bricks. And Joshua tells them, no, 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 guys, we don't have time to make bricks to throw at them. We need to fight. And what happened? God tells Moses to go up on a hill and he raises a hand and they start to win the battle. And his hands get tired and he lowers it and they start to lose the battle. So God gives you know, Aaron and, and them come up to help Moses and keep his hands up and they, they're winning. And Moses probably went back to his tent and just stood in his tent and started doing this and seeing what, what else would happen, you know? That's what I, well, at least that's what I would do, you know? But they get to see this, you know, the glory of God. They, you know, they get to Sinai. He leads them to the mountain. There's a fire up on top. They see the, the glory of God. They build a temple there. Moses goes in and he talks to God and he comes out and his face is all shiny. He goes up onto the mountaintop and he comes back and no one could look at his face. Talking about the miracles of God. They're led around the desert by, you know, a pillar of fire during the, day, uh, during the night and a cloud to give them shade in the desert during the day. And I can tell you that makes a big difference. Yesterday my son had an 8.30 baseball game, you know, over at uh, one of the other churches. And, and I tell you the big difference between last week and this week, it was the same temperature, but we had a little bit of shade. Huge difference. Shade during the day and heat during the night. God thought of everything. God is an amazing God. Israel got to see the glory of God. And it goes on and on and on. And what did they do when the Messiah showed up? They rejected him. So the first advantage is, is the adoption. And the second advantage is glory. The third advantage is the covenants. In Genesis 12.1, I will bless you, or I will bless those who bless you, and curse those who curse you. All, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, do you see the Gentiles in there? Absolutely. God says, I'm going to bless the world through you. Well, what's the world? Well, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. God's going to bless you through the Jews. It was the part of his plan from the beginning to rescue the world. Now, like he said, fine, since you won't follow me, I'm going to go to my second choice, the Gentiles. We were chosen just like Israel was. He was always going to use them to show the world who he was. Now, what else did they have? Adoption, glory, and the covenants? They had the law. They had the Ten Commandments. They had everything that God said, this is my full expectation of how you were to live. Hence the need for a Messiah. Because basically he said, here's all my rules. Now, can you live up to those rules? And they went, no. Hence the need for the Messiah. They also had a, um, temple worship, a place where they could go and actually talk to God. God teaching them how to worship. They had the tabernacle, the priesthood, the atonement, the scapegoats, the way to be saved before Christ. They had everything that pointed toward Christ. They also had the promises all the way through, you know, from, from Genesis to Malachi, all these promises. Uh, I will give you, I will give you, I will give you, I will give you. Honor your father and mother, I will give you more days. They had all these things that God said, I will do for you. And then they had the patriarchs. God gave them wonderful leaders. 
fathers like, you know, Father Abraham, or Isaac, or, or Jacob, or Sarah, or Deborah, or Ruth, or Rebecca, or Samuel, or David, or Daniel, or Elijah. I mean, the Israelites get, you know, get all of this. And then lastly, Christ himself comes, the ultimate of all advantages. He, you know, he's, he's the ultimate patriarch for them. He is their advantage. He came as a Jewish baby in a Jewish town to a Jewish mommy fulfilling all the promises. He went to synagogue. He, he was a Jewish rabbi. He celebrated the Sabbath every weekend. He taught. Christ came to the Jews. He taught and worked miracles all over Israel, which is interesting. Because what John says in John 1 is this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which is seen with our eyes, and he's talking about, about all of this, which we have looked at in our hands and have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the Father, and he has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship with, is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Wow. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So the Apostle Paul is saying, look at what the Jews have. God has been trying and trying and trying so they would get to know Him. Hmm. To worship Him. To see His glory. To have His promises, His law. To receive the Messiah. But for the most part, what did they do? They rejected Jesus. They didn't accept him. Now, a few came along, of course, but the majority didn't. Gentiles really didn't come into play until the book of Acts. And before that, it was mainly Jews. But Paul says in verse 6, It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are, are from Israel are Israel. Now, this is kind of a head-scratcher. You kind of have to think about it to figure it out. Israel means governed by God. And just because God governs you doesn't mean that you're governed by God. Does that make sense? Maybe, maybe not. Well, talk to me later. We'll talk about it a little bit more. But, but, but in verse 7 it says, Nor because they are his descendants are they Abraham's children. This is what he's trying to say here. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words... It is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this vow, or for this was how the promise was stated at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. What is Paul trying to say? And I know I've confused you. To understand this, we have to be you know, familiar with the, the Ishmael Isaac story. In order to understand spirit versus flesh. And I know this is summertime, but you've got to do some homework. Because next time, we're going to be talking about the Isaac Ishmael story. And you need to be familiar with it. But if you were a Jew, especially if you were a good Jew, you would know the story. 
Now, if I read about these advantages for the Jews, I get kind of jealous. I mean, no fair. They had it all. They had everything to point them toward Jesus. And the Messiah actually came to them first. But then the Lord convicted me and said, Well, Alan, how many advantages have I given you? I mean, you had a mom and dad who loved you, that stayed married the whole time. You have a wife who loves you. You have two great kids that, that do everything you say most of the time. <laughs> you have a job. You have your health. You know the Bible, you know, backwards and forwards. You get to teach it for a living. How many more advantages do you need, Alan? And I go, well, what do you mean, Lord? I've done a lot. And he goes, Hey, 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 Gabriel, come over and see what Alan's done. This is what the Lord is saying to us as well. What have you done with what God has given you? What are you doing with what God has given you? We should not be so critical to the Jews because we're kind of in the same boat. We have some advantages too. And some of us would go, what do you mean advantages? I got divorced. I lost my job. My kids don't respect me. I'm sick. I'm broke. What do you mean advantage? Well, if you can get through those things with the grace and mercy of God, then you can get to the other side, and then you can help other people who are going through the same exact type of situations. What an advantage is that? That you can help other people go through that. So they can feel like, man, I'm not alone in this situation. You can use the great wisdom that God has given you through that process. We need to be on our knees before God saying, why have you blessed me so much? And what do you want me to do with it? What do you want me to do with it? What mission do you have for me? Because we all have a mission in this life. You know, uh, it's hard not to, over the years, uh, my wife and I, you know, we're the same way. You know, we come in to, to different churches and we're like, well, what can this church do for me? You know, well, I wish they'd do this. I wish they'd do that. I wish they had this ministry. I wish they had that ministry. What can the church do for me? And God's sitting there going, well, Alan, I, I'm waiting for you to serve me. What, what can you do for God? God wants to know, what are you willing to do to save your friend? What are you willing to do to, to use the things in your life that you've gone through to help somebody else in that process? It may not be the exact same thing, but we need to lean on each other. We need to rely on each other, and it takes us opening up ourselves. It takes us opening up our lives. It takes us recognizing the advantages that God has given us. I mean... Think about it this way. The advantage you have is you live in America and you came to an air conditioning church on Sunday morning. Go to Iraq and try to do that. Go to Korea and try to do or North Korea and try to do that. Go to China and try to do that. Go to China and take your Bible outside, see if you don't get arrested. There's many other places around the world that don't have the advantages that we do. And I, I'm not trying to beat you over the head. I'm not trying to say that. I'm, I, I want to encourage you to go to God and say, God... How do you want me to serve you in this world? Because I don't want to be like the Jews. I mean, yes, I've recognized Jesus, but I don't want to, I, I still want to recognize Jesus. You know what I'm saying? 
I don't want to just say, okay, I'm saved. That's it. Done. I want to say, God, now that you've saved me, I want to continue to see you. And what do you want me to do with what I've learned from you? That's the big question for you this morning. Well, why don't you stand and we'll, uh, we'll pray as the uh, worship team comes and finishes us up for the day. Lord, I, I come to you as a humble servant, as, as somebody who has so many advantages. We here, we here in America just don't realize the things that you have for us and things that you've afforded us. I pray, Lord, that we open our eyes to the, to the nature of those around us, the ones that maybe are going through a difficult time or are those that don't know you. Instead of looking at them as the enemy, looking at them as the mission field, looking at them as going, okay, God, how can I do? What can I do? How can I pray? Should I fast? Should I not fast? Should I open up the conversation? Should I, should I be quiet and just love them to, uh, love them to pieces, Lord? Lord, I, I pray for your outright enemies, those that, that, that are out there literally killing Christians, Lord. Oh, that they would come to know you, that you would open their eyes to the true God, that they would not persecute you anymore, that they would not be, you know, Saul's walking around trying to kill Christians, that you would turn them into Paul's, that as we protect ourselves like we ought to, that we still open our hearts up and see that they could have a path to the real glory, your glory, God. Mm. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he open your eyes to the advantages that he's given you. And may you respond in kind to him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.